Welcome back everyone, today is October 26, and if it's Tuesday, then this is The Delve. Early this month, a 21-year-old Oklahoma woman, Brittany Pula, member of the Comanche Nation, was sentenced by a jury to four years in state prison for manslaughter after suffering a miscarriage. Prosecutors argued her use of methamphetamines caused the miscarriage, a claim that is not supported by the biopsy or the gynecological science. Brittany was between 15 and 17 weeks pregnant at the time of the miscarriage, which was a year and a half ago. She has been in jail awaiting trial ever since. 15% of pregnancies in people under the age of 35 in the miscarriage and October is National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. To any of our listeners who may have lost or needed to terminate a wanted pregnancy, please know that you are not alone, and we are sorry for your loss. People suffering through and surviving a pregnancy loss, and an addiction for that matter, need support, healthcare, and love, not jail time. From Michelle Goldberg's opinion piece in the New York Times, Pulos' case is an injustice, but is also a warning This is what happens when the law treats embryos and fetuses as people with rights that supersede the rights of those who carry them, and it offers a glimpse of the sort of prosecutions that could become common in a world in which Roe v. Wade is overturned, one we could be living in as soon as next year." And they are already far too common. The National Advocates for Pregnant Women have documented over 1,600 cases of the criminalization of pregnant women, 1,200 of those since 2006. Women have been arrested for falling downstairs, drinking alcohol, giving birth at home, being in a dangerous location, having HIV, experiencing a drug dependency problem, or attempting suicide. The majority of these cases are brought against low-income women, drug-using women, and women of color. The experiences of these women are why we wanted to highlight the reproductive justice framework So today we are picking up with the second half of our interview with Lori Betram Roberts, Executive Director of Yellow Hammer Fund and co-founder of the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund. Heads up again, listeners. This interview contains some adult language and some heartbreaking anecdotes of sexual assault, abortion, and domestic violence. We really enjoyed our conversation with Lori, but the content of this interview is very serious, and it can be heavy at times. So... Please give a listen. We have the time and the space for the subject matter. Can you just explain for our listeners, just very quickly, what is the Hyde Amendment and why is it bad? Yes. So the Hyde (laughs) Amendment is a travesty enacted by Henry Hyde. Ew. Forget him. A man who was like so disgusting that he said, I'm paraphrasing that he would love to, you know, make it so no one could hit an abortion. But since he only had power over Medicaid, he would settle for making it so poor women couldn't access abortions easily. You can look the quote up, but he basically said that. And so originally it just banned funding for Medicaid. But as the years went on, it became that it could ban all federal funds for abortion. So that means no one in the military can get an abortion with their health care. No one in the Coast Guard, no one in the Peace Corps, no one who's a federal employee, no one on Medicaid, no one on Medicare, 
which I want to mm. highlight that Medicare is not just for older people. Medicare is also for younger disabled people. Mm. Right? That's super so a lot important. of people go, oh, no one on Medicare would need an abortion. Oh, wouldn't they? Mm. Right? Because also a lot of, you know, disabled people are more likely to be sexually assaulted. Right. Right. Let's just put that out there. So it bans any federal money. After Heidemann was passed, a lot of states copied it on the state level. And so then they made it so no state money could go for abortion. And then to make it even worse, then when they made the state exchanges for the ACA, they banned abortion coverage in the ACA exchanges. So like Alabama, Mississippi, you cannot get abortion coverage in your regular ACA coverage. You have to buy a separate rider. That you pay for then monthly? Separately, yep. Just in case you need an abortion. Right, right. Yep. Goodness. I can't even count the number of callers over the last eight years that have said to me, I thought I'd be able to use my insurance. I have really good insurance. Mm. (laughs) And I was like, nope. And I always Mm. feel bad for military members who didn't realize TRICARE doesn't pay for it. Imagine serving the military for like 12 years. You've been sexually assaulted by someone in command. Mm. Now you're pregnant and the military won't even pay for your damn abortion. Also put it out there that like there's all those military bases in Guam. And at Mm. one point there was no abortion provider in Guam. The last one had left. There were none there. That's an island. Yeah. Now you're getting on boats and airplanes. (laughs) Right. Mm-hmm. And this is a post-Roe America. Like, it's supposed to be accessible. Yeah. So you're supposed to have, like, you know, access. Right. So this is what I need people to understand. Legal access doesn't mean equitable yeah. access. And that what they should be wary of coming down the pike is that, like, this Texas ban is literally written so that Roe would be on the books and legal, but essentially gone. Mm-hmm. Right? What is abortion access if it's only six weeks? I mean, come on now. Anyone who's even watched a pregnancy test commercial knows they'll be like, oh, we can detect your pregnancy as early as three weeks. Okay. Mm. So now I got three weeks to get my abortion. That means taking off work, possibly getting childcare, depending on who I am, driving to that other abortion clinic I have to go to twice. Mm-hmm. What's been happening to people in Texas? is like they'll go for their first appointment and there's no heartbeat, which is not a real heartbeat anyways. It's just fetal pole activity. There's mm. no electrical activity in the embryo. And then they go to the second one and there is. So guess what? They can't have their abortion now. <laughs> Too late. And they're only six weeks. Like, <laughs> Right. That is so early. I think people really don't have an understanding of how early that is and how much time it takes to schedule an abortion, to get there, to take two days off of work. And even, you know, somebody might need some time to process, need some time to think about it, need some time to make a decision, need some time to talk to their partner, you know. And if you're a minor and you need a judicial bypass, you see where I'm going here? Like, Mm -hmm. there's just a lot. I mean, what if you're locked up? What if you're in detention? What if your cycles don't come regularly? Yeah. You know how many people we funded who were like, oh, I got to be only about like seven weeks, you know, but my cycles aren't really regular. We get them to the clinic. <laughs> They're 15, 16 weeks already. Mm. We had one person who thought she was like seven weeks. 
we get her to the clinic, she's 21 weeks already. Wow. And the worst cases that are usually like that are young people because they generally don't really understand counting their periods yet or anything. Right. Or a lot of times they're victims of sexual violence. And so like we had one case where a young woman, her mom didn't even know she had been a victim of long-term sexual violence by a family member until like it came out and then the police were investigating and during the investigation they pregnancy tested her she didn't know she was pregnant got her to the clinic she was already 22 weeks wow so now we got to send her out of state but she was only 13 oh my goodness that's so young and the thing that really irritates me about anti-abortion people is they'd be like oh well that's a blessing you know but i'm like that's a child why don't you have any compassion for that living, breathing child? Right. For that Why would 13. you want a child to go through a pregnancy, even if they gave that child up for adoption? Why would you want a living, breathing child to go through that? Physically. Physically, she could be damaged for life. Right. My body was never the same. Right. Honestly, yeah, I, I mean, had twins. so young, you're not done with puberty. At 13, yeah. you maybe haven't really even started. You've just started. Listen, my doctors kept warning me, and I didn't really think they were serious, but they were serious, that if I didn't up my calcium levels while I was pregnant, I was going to have problems with my bones because my bones were still growing. And if you Mm. don't ingest enough calcium, your babies will leach calcium from your body. Mm. Right? Yeah, I was sick while I was pregnant. I mean, I was sick. I had twins when I was 16. It was not easy. It was really, really rough. Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, like, my body is permanently damaged from having kids back-to-back in my 20s. One star, do not recommend. <laughs> like, honestly, it's very, very, very much not the mood. <laughs> I mean, the kids are great. I love them. They're amazing humans, but the experience right. was trash. <laughs> do not recommend. Oh, the pregnancies and the deliveries were, mm-mm, no. Uh-huh. No, nope, I can't nope. imagine... I mean, I'm a mom. I'm 31. I can't imagine going through all of that as a teenager. I mean, being pregnant, it's so time consuming. It's so time consuming physically for, you know, okay, I got to do this. I got to take these vitamins. I got to go to the doctor. I got to, you know, make sure I'm getting the right nutrients and blah, blah, blah. And then it's so time consuming mentally. And yeah. And when you're a teenager, when you're a young person, you don't have that space and capacity. Maybe some people do, and that's not to knock teen moms who say, you know, like, I'm ready. I'm happy to do it and I want to do it. But I think for most people, it's like, no, I don't have the capacity for that. I'm still learning to be myself. You know, I'm still figuring out who am I and my body is still figuring out what is it going to look like when it's grown and, you know, how's it going to work? And so to do something so big to do something so huge physically in your body is too much yeah like I literally will support any team that wants to carry their pregnancy to term and I mean I will get them the best health care that I can get them and mm-hmm. look I'll even be their doula I absolutely do not regret my decision to have my twins but I think that when we tell people especially when we tell young people you know what they should expect when they stay pregnant Mm -hmm. We should be (laughs) definitely honest with them instead of being like, 
everything will be great. And we're going to give you diapers every week. You know, like this lollipops, rainbows and sprinkles thing that the CPCs do to me is so dishonest and so rude. And I would never sell my kids a fairy tale about abortion or parenting. Parenting Mm -hmm. is hard. Abortion is surgery. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're going to have feelings or you have feelings about any surgery. Hell, I had feelings about my tonsillectomy. Like, I mean, you have mm. feelings about anything you do. And especially this, because it's evolving potential life. It's a big decision, but it's your decision. Mm-hmm. But I just think like, especially when you're talking about young teens under 14, for me, this is me and Lori saying it, not the movement, not nobody else. <laughs> I think when you're talking about 13 and under, Parents should be generally leading that conversation unless they're like abusive parents or whatever. It's about hard what, to figure out. Yeah, because honestly, I believe that child has autonomy, right? Mm-hmm. But I also don't feel like a 12-year-old body, you know, like I feel like there's a health risk in there. Yes. And that's a child. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just don't think 12 and 16 are the same thing. And right. That's just my mom hat. And not my reproductive rights worker hat. I mean, 12, 13, that's just so incredibly young. It's so young. I would never force anybody, but I do understand why there's parents that would like, you know, nudge their child towards the Right. I mean, but there are factors at play if a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old is pregnant, right? Oh, God, yes. Mm. But yeah. let me just say, in Mississippi, more parents nudge their teens towards parenting. And nobody thinks that's weird. Mm. People will complain about teen parenting all day long, but they don't think it's weird that parents nudge their teens towards parenting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I think, especially, let me just get this out, when most of the teens who are pregnant are pregnant by grown men right. Right. who technically statutorily rape them. Right. Right? So they're pregnant by rapists. Yep. I'm not sure why you would be pushing for your child to have a rapist baby. Mm-hmm. Now, if she wants to, that's different. But right. I don't know why you would be pushing for it. Mm-hmm. It's such a weird, antiquated thing. Because I come across so many people who are literally co-parenting with the guy who raped them when they were 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. In their 20s now. It's so interesting to hear you say that I live in Southern Africa and I used to live in rural Eswatini, what was formerly known as Swaziland. And that was the sentiment there in that community. Well, first of all, the relationships were almost always, you know, with those age gaps, young girls and older men, girls in high school and men in their 20s and early 30s. And there was this pressure that a baby is a blessing and you should parent that baby and have that baby and people raising children or raising children on their own because those men were not around anymore. You know, it was a lot to take in. And I'm from the Northeast. I'm from the city, you know, so I'm not from the South. I don't know the South at all. So it's interesting to hear you say that because it's like, wow, I don't think I realized where the culture was, where that existed in the United States in the same way. And maybe I'm just naive. Oh, no, it does. It's not just the South. I think it's more of a Christian culture thing. Mm, I think it's more of a definitely conservative Christian thing. And it's not just a white thing. It's definitely just a Christian-y thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know for my ex-husband and I, 
you know, he was 19. We got married. I was 16. As soon as I found out I was pregnant, the first thing that we both said is we've got to get married. No one even had to say it to us. This is what mm. I want to point out. No one mm. even had to say it to us. Like that's how indoctrinated we were. He was raised strict Pentecostal. I was raised strict Baptist. We felt like to be able to be successful parents and for our kids' souls not to be <laughs> damned to hell, mm. we had to get right by God and get married. Mm. And honestly, that's literally what it was. And the church that he grew up in would not even marry us if I wore white for our wedding. So I'm wearing oh boy. <laughs> this bright pink dress at our wedding that I did not even freaking want to wear. I look like a weird Southern belle because it's not my dress. I got it from his cousin. It was a pretty dress, but it's not what I would have picked to wear. I look like teen marriage Barbie. That's what I look like. <laughs> you know, at the time I thought I looked so grown up, but I look so young. I look like a mm. baby. Mm. And the fact that nobody told us, hey, maybe this is a bad idea. I don't right. think y'all should get married. Maybe y'all should just co-parent for a while and see what happens. No, everybody thought it was the greatest idea. You know, everybody acted like it was just the best thing. And I was yeah. like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and I wasn't even only married girl at my school. At 16. Oh. In Indiana. <laughs> oh, boy. There was another girl who was married. And the same year that I had twins, there was a girl that had triplets. Oh, boy. That's just too many extra babies, you know? <laughs> Like, I'm going to do the pregnancy thing. Oh, now you get two. Oh, now you get three. Like, no, 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 no. There was actually this white girl in my school who had three kids by her junior year. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yep. What is the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund? What do you do exactly? And how can women who are experiencing this hardship get in touch with you? Okay, so the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund was founded in 2013, originally as a line item in the Mississippi Now budget, and we just funded abortions and we gave out Plan B. And since then, we have grown. Our intentions were always to grow as a broader-based reproductive justice organization that funded abortions. So our object was never just be an abortion fund. So what do we do? We fund abortions. Actually, we're a practical support fund, not so much of an abortion fund. What that means is, is we help people with all the things outside of their abortion that helps them get to their abortion or helps them access their abortion. And one of the things that's different about Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund is that we put cash in people's hands or we give them gift cards like for their gas or whatever to get to their appointments. They might have taken their bill money for their appointment. And so then we pay for their bill. Does that make sense? Beyond that, we have a diaper closet. We have a period supply closet. We have a little free pantry. We have a little free library. We own some property. We have not started our community farm yet. We have another house that we're working on to make it into emergency housing. Originally, that wasn't our plan, but that's where we've pivoted since COVID. We have a property that we call the Fun Shack. It's where our free library is and our free pantry and our lending library that is not currently available because of COVID. That's the property we bought in 2017 with our Trump bucks. Yay. Thanks, Donald. And <laughs> it is painted purple with turquoise trim. People can't miss it. It's right across from Jim Hill High School in Jackson, Mississippi. And if people want to find us, they can go to ms. Reprofreedomfund.org. 
we'll make sure we put that into the description as well. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. And does your fund only work in Mississippi? Because there's only one abortion clinic in Mississippi right now. And then in the anecdote you spoke about in Hawaii, you guys can help folks that are outside of Mississippi. Yeah, because she was a Mississippian. Oh, I see. So I co-founded the Mississippi Fund in 2013. I've been running the Yellowhammer Fund for a year now. Mm. I helped them found the Yellowhammer Fund. Like the Yellowhammer Fund was founded in the image of Mississippi's fund. Okay. So is the Mississippi one only for Mississippians and Yellowhammer only for Alabamans? No. This is how we're doing it right now. So Mississippi and Alabama are in a partnership right now. And what we're doing is everybody from Mississippi and Alabama can call Yellowhammer for direct funding to a clinic. Uh And everybody from Mississippi and Alabama can call Mississippi's fund for practical support funding. Okay. But it is just for those states. Correct. Unless Mm. we have extra funding available. But that Mm. means if you're coming to those states too. Mm. Not just if you live in those states. Mm. But I'll be honest, a lot of our funding goes to people who are going outside the state. The Mississippi Fund actually doesn't fund a whole lot at the towards the clinic in Jackson. Mm. I mean, we do fund towards the clinic in Jackson, including giving people directly money to pay for their bill. Mm. But what we do fund more is people who have to go out of state, who have so, like $2,000 to pay for their procedure. So there's one clinic in Mississippi. How many are in Alabama? There's three independent clinics and there's two Planned Parenthoods that are sometimes open. Mm. And there's three clinics in Louisiana. Uh, there are wow, clinics. I wow. think there's eight clinics in Georgia. I might be lying. Like there's at least six though. Mm-hmm. There's three that we use in Atlanta. Florida ain't much better. There's really nothing in the panhandle. Florida's got a lot of clinics, but they're all spread out. Like mm-hmm. out of everywhere in the South though, Florida's got the most clinics. Okay. Tennessee ain't got shit. Arkansas has one clinic now. Wow. In Little Rock. They might have too. At one point, it was Little Rock Family Planning and uh, Planned Parenthood was open. But the Planned Parenthood, you couldn't count on for nothing because they only did a medical abortion. Wow. And this is probably like, I don't know how easy it is to even answer this question, but I tend to look in these interviews asking for something that makes you optimistic or something that you're hopeful for. Is there anything in this space that gives you optimism or hope? I'm always optimistic. There we go. Listen, the organizing and resilience of women of color always makes me hopeful. Mm. Not because I feel like we should have to keep doing this struggle. I don't. I feel like we should be able to go on a long, long sabbatical that Mm. is paid for and pampered. But I just know that, you know, there's some really dope organizing going on in the South that could Mm. only be done in the South that is done in a fearless way that is so absolutely Southern and unapologetic. I definitely want to end this with a thank you. Thank you for what you do for women, for using what's given to you to create a safe, welcoming, inclusive base for mothers and for scared women and girls and queer people and folks who had, you know, the strength to tell you their stories and deposit that with you for, you know, standing up for the most marginalized folks, folks seeking abortions. And, you know, that can be such a scary and alienating process. And I can imagine there's nothing like a mom to a young baby. I'm sure it's the most wonderful and simultaneously the most difficult thing to do in your life, especially in a society that's not offering much support. 
in either scenario. So thank you for stepping up and being the champion of reproductive justice. What you do is really special. It's special. It's necessary. Mississippi, Alabama, and the world, and the U.S., you know, we're all better for having you. I'm just one drop in a big old bucket of (laughs) folks. Like, you know, like, honestly, someone taught me, and I'm teaching others, and, like, I'm just one person that sometimes gets acknowledged, and there's a whole bunch of others holding me up, and, you know, I appreciate them. People like Michelle Colon and Valencia Robinson and Monica at Sister Song, and I've learned from all kinds of people, you know, Sharice at Sister Reach, just, you know, my homies keeping yeah. me together. You guys are doing the Lord's work. Really. I say that all the time. I call it goddess work <laughs> okay. because I feel like mm-hmm. it is deeply connected to like feminine and masculine energy. But I'll honestly say I never feel more connected to like the ancestors and spirit than when I'm helping someone in the birthing space, like whether it's being Mm. an abortion doula or a birth doula or a loss doula or whatever, to me, that's like work deeply grounded in spirit and just deep empathy. It's love and energy work, you know? Yeah. 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 This is The Delve. Check out our Instagram, where we would love to continue the conversation with you. Uh, You can find us at The Delve Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you Tuesday.